We're in Micah chapter 1 tonight. Micah chapter 1. And we'll begin uh, this book tonight. So Micah chapter 1. And we'll read the first chapter and then pray and have our Bible study from there. Micah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Moresheth, in the jays of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from His place, and He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will be split, like wax before fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country. Planting places for a vineyard, I will pour her stones down into the valley, and will lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be smashed, all her earnings will be burned with fire, all her images I will make desolate. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. Because of this I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals, and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all at Beth Laophra, row yourself in the dust. Go on your way, inhabitant of Shafir, in shameful nakedness. The inhabitant of Zanon does not escape. The lamentation of Beth Ezel will take you from its support. For the inhabitant of Meroth becomes weak, waiting for good. Because a calamity has come down from the Lord to the gates of Jerusalem. Harness the chariot to the team of horses, O inhabitant of Lachish. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. Therefore you will give parting gifts on behalf of Moresheth, Gath. The house of Akzib will become a deception to the kings of Israel. Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Marashah. The glory of Israel will enter Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle, for they will go from you into exile. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. And Lord, we do pray that You would remind us both of the kindness and severity of God. Uh, that, Lord, we might uh, have this remembrance that though You are uh, rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, um, that You are also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, but those who practice sin, those who... Um, worship idols, uh, those who are uh, indulgent and presume upon the richness of your kindness and forbearance, that eventually you will rouse yourself up uh, from your throne of, judge of judgment and that you will come and make a quick end to them. And so, Father, may we not uh, be so deceived, but rather uh, see and understand that just as you brought your judgments upon the world in the days of old, so you continue to do so in our present age, and that you will once again uh, bring it uh, in a universal way on the day of judgment. 
and that we must be prepared uh, to escape this great uh, judgment of God uh, by fleeing the wrath to come and finding our safety in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Lord, teach us as we study through this book. Uh, Lord, may its uh, teaching and its content be very relevant and applicable, Lord, to our own lives. Uh, and may we incorporate it into our faith and into our practice. And it is in Christ that we pray. Amen. All right, so here we are in the book of Micah. Micah being one of the minor prophets. Minor, not because the content is minor, but minor uh, because the length of the book is, is short in comparison to the major prophets, which are very lengthy in their discourses. So uh, here we have then the book of Micah. And as many other prophetic books, it is both a mixture of uh, threats and warnings of the coming judgment of God, but also intermixed with promises of redemption and salvation for those who repent. And this was uh, consistent with the prophets and also with John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ and with the holy apostles as well. That they preach both of these truths, both the judgment of God that necessitates the need for salvation and redemption. And that there is the hope of salvation, but not if we remain in our sin. That we must repent of our sins and trust in Christ and do those things that are pleasing to the Lord, but not presume upon the richness of His kindness and forbearance and patience. And this was a common problem with the people of Israel. Because of their exalted status and the position that God granted to them amongst all the nations of the earth, they were very presumptuous and became haughty in their sin, thinking that they were invincible and that they had the favor of God simply by virtue of this divine right, uh, by a, a birthright. And yet uh, the prophets are continually telling them that this is not the case and that God's judgment will come against them if they don't repent of their sins. And if they behave and follow the same wicked practices of the nations, then those things that happen to the nations will also happen to them, that they will not be exempt because God is impartial in His judgment. He shows no partiality in the way that He judges. And if the Jews behave as wickedly as the Gentiles, then they will suffer the same fate as they. And so Micah, a prophet, is raised up by God in this extraordinary way to come and to preach the Word of God to the people. And this is the office or the purpose of the prophets. The Typically, when they were raised up, those general teachers, the common teachers, which would be from the priests and the Levites, were so derelict in their duty that it required God raising up a special man of God to come and to preach against the sins of the people. And Micah was one such man that was chosen by God for this task. He didn't take it upon himself, but it was granted to him by God. Here we begin in verse 1. It tells us there that Micah of Moresheth, uh, that he prophesied in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Here, these three men <clears throat> are uh, kings of the southern kingdom. So Micah was a prophet, though he does speak of the northern kingdom, and certainly his prophecy is valid there. His primary target or focus was the southern kingdom, which is the kingdom of Judah, and would be there in Jerusalem. And it was during the reign of these three kings, which are successive kings in the history of Judah. We remember that 
Israel was a united kingdom under Saul, then under David and Solomon. And then after Solomon, there was a division between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom uh, following Jeroboam and the southern kingdom following Rehoboam. The northern kingdom comprised of ten tribes and the southern kingdom comprised of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin and the other ten in the north. The southern kingdom is often called Judah and the northern is often called Israel, though they can be used interchangeably of one or the other. Okay, so here he is in the southern part, and he's prophesying during the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. It doesn't tell us exactly how long his ministry was, but most scholars and most uh, uh, church history and tradition think that he prophesied likely 30 to 40 years. Because of the length of these uh, kingships, uh, it could have been shorter than that, but Jotham had a 16-year reign, Ahaz had a 16-year reign, and Hezekiah had a 29-year reign. So he was during this time, and also he was a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah would have been prophesying during this same period of time, and many of the things that Micah says are similar to what Isaiah is saying and what he is preaching as well. And in this way, it was a kindness of God to raise up not only one preeminent prophet like Micah, but also to have Isaiah there as well, to have these two in unison agreeing and preaching the same thing to the people. So it was God's kindness uh, to give to them such prophets as Micah and Isaiah. Also, Micah is referenced very quickly after his life and is recognized as a prophet even within about a hundred years of the time that he died. If we go to Jeremiah 26, Jeremiah 26 there, Jeremiah and the men in his day recognize <clears throat> Micah as a prophet of God. So already uh, within a very short amount of time, and it's about a hundred year period of time, from Isaiah and Micah to the time of Jeremiah. Uh, already during the days of Jeremiah, Micah is regarded as a prophet of God. Jeremiah 26 verse 16 says, Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and to the prophets, No death sentence for this man, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then some of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he spoke to all the people of Judah, Judah, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become ruins, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them? But we are committing a great evil against ourselves. Here, when the people are considering executing and putting Jeremiah to death, and the reason they're wanting to do this is to Jeremiah is because he is announcing to them that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And here, these elders speak up and say, isn't this the same thing that Micah did? Micah pronounced these things as well, and he did so during the days of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah didn't kill him. He didn't put him to death, but they listened to him and they repented of their sin and they were spared in their day. So we shouldn't do this great evil by putting to death Jeremiah because his word, his message is in agreement 
with Micah, and in the days of our forefathers, they recognizing Hezekiah as a good king, Hezekiah did not behave in this evil way. So already here in Jeremiah, they are regarding Micah as a true prophet of God. Also, if we go to Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come and are searching for the Christ, and they come to Jerusalem, <clears throat> here the uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem during this time, they also recognize Micah as a prophet of God. So this simply to show that in the Jewish canon, even before the coming of Christ and before the apostles, Micah was already regarded as a prophet of God and his writings were incorporated into the Jewish canon of Scripture. What we call the Old Testament, Micah was considered by them to be a true prophet of God in that the words that he prophesied and spoke were a word from the Lord. And they indeed are a word from God. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So there, whenever they are seeking to understand and know where the Christ or the Messiah was to be born, they know that Micah prophesied concerning the coming Christ and predicted where it was that he was going to be born. And this is what they tell Herod. And then they tell these magi to go to Bethlehem, and this is where they will find the Messiah that they are looking for. And then what happened? They went there and they found it just as they had been told. So here they are already recognizing um, that Micah is truly a prophet of God. And we see there in verse 1 that it is the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, that no prophecy of Scripture comes about by the man's own interpretation. Micah was not a religious zealot. He was not a fanatic. He was not a wise man in his own mind and eyes. The words that he received, he received from the Holy Spirit of God. He was led by the Spirit so that what he delivered to the people was indeed the infallible Word of God without any error. So everything that we read here, it is the Word of the Lord through the prophet Micah. God uses these holy men as His instruments, as His vessels, to deliver His Word to the people. But we should receive it, not as a word from man, but as it truly is, it is the Word of the Lord. And it has the authority of God attached to it. And this is the way Micah presented it, and this is the expectation of the people in his own day. And it is the expectation for us as well that we receive this as a word from God. And if we reject it and turn away from it, then we have to deal with God. That's who we have to deal with. And that is what Micah is calling the attention of the people to. And here specifically it says that this prophecy, this word that he has, is concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria and Jerusalem, these are the two chief cities, both of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Samaria being the capital of the northern kingdom, 
and Jerusalem being the capital of the southern kingdom. And it was from these two cities that the corruptions, the sins, the idolatry that was plaguing the people, it flowed out from these two cities and was corrupting and polluting the entire land of Israel, all of God's people, so that the judgment of God is coming upon them. So they were the ones who are chiefly to be blamed for what was happening in the land as a whole. And it would be there that you would have both the religious leadership in both respective capital, capitals and also the civil leadership. Both of them would be there, those who are to preserve the word of God and the worship of God, and those who are to promote justice and righteousness in the land by following the word of God. And yet here in this center, in this area where these two things should be preserved and protected, instead there is corruption and the result is a corruption of the entire body of the people so that all of them are coming under the judgment of God. But it is specifically these two cities that are singled out, though he will mention other cities as well as he goes on throughout his prophecy. Then verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all that it contains. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. Here he is speaking as God's ambassador, that this is God's testimony against the people. God has something to say concerning you, right? And God himself is rising up to give his testimony, right? His view, his witness concerning the people. And is there anything that could be more frightening than to have God rise up as a witness against you, to condemn you, to expose your sin and your evil? Because if God is against us, then what can we do? Right? There is no way that we can exonerate ourselves. No way that we can be acquitted when God rises up as a witness against us, when He is both the witness against us and the judge who will hear and decide our case. Right? There is no hope for the wicked right? who will not repent of their sins but remain practicing their sins, steadfast in their sin. They will not escape the judgment of God because God is the one who is rising up against them. And this is against his own people, right? Of all the people of the earth who should be following the will of God, who should be reconciled to God and worshiping God truly, it is the people of Israel. And yet here where God has made his name known and has granted to them and established the true worship of God, yet here God himself has to rise up as a witness against his own people because of the magnitude of their sin and all their corruptions. In Romans chapter 8, 33 and 34, we remember the positive side of this, that if God is for us, who can be against us? And if God is a witness on our behalf, then who can bring any charge against us? If God acquits us, then no one can bring any charge that is able to stand or stick that will result in the condemnation of God's people. Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. No one can bring any charge against God's elect. God justifies. He is the judge. He is the justifier of the ungodly. And if God justifies a person and declares them righteous, declares them to be innocent in His sight, 
that all of their sins have been paid for by the blood of Christ and that they have been clothed in His perfect righteousness and been made the very righteousness of God, then who can justly condemn such a person? No one can. No one has the ability to do so because God is the judge of heaven and earth. He is the one that we all stand before. Well, the opposite is true as well. If God is against us, if God is the one standing, condemning us because of our sin, then who can acquit us? Who can declare our innocence? Who can say that we are righteous in His sight? Whatever a man will present as the basis of his own righteousness is complete filth and worthlessness in the sight of God. And whatever his own mind thinks about himself and what other other people think about him doesn't matter on the day of judgment. Because who do we answer to on the day of judgment? We do not answer to the court of public opinion. We don't answer to the court of our own wisdom and our own thoughts and uh, ideas about ourselves. We answer to God. And God is the one who will judge. And if He rises up against a man, then there is nothing that man can do to escape the wrath of God, the dreadful, terrifying wrath of God. Also notice there that the Lord is in His holy temple. God's temple is a holy temple. And this is the temple in heaven. His holy temple from heaven where He sees the earth and all the inhabitants thereof and He judges the earth. He weighs them according to His own holiness, His own standard of righteousness, not the feeble righteousness of men. Verse 3, For behold, the Lord is coming forth from His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The Lord is coming down from His place. God is rising from His throne, metaphorically, and He is coming down onto the earth, and He's going to bring His judgments with Him, and He's going to strike the earth with His wrath. This is what God is coming to do. God is patient. God is slow to anger. He is a long-suffering God, but His patience eventually comes to an end. And when God rouses Himself to bring forth His judgments on the earth, they are terrifying and they make a complete end of those that God determines to destroy. We remember that in the days of Abraham, God was patient with the men of Canaan. That the iniquity of the Amorites, He told Abraham, was not yet complete. However, was it complete one day? There was a day when it was completed. And when it was completed and God rose off of His throne and came down to make an end of those people, what happened to them? Was there any escape? No, He made a complete decimation of them. This is also what He did to the ancient world when He brought the deluge of the flood upon them. And here He did it as well, even to His own people. He will come and tread on the high places of the earth. The high places of the earth, like Jerusalem and Samaria, which were cities built on mountains, that were fortresses, that were hard uh, to conquer. They had uh, advantages in terms of defense, in terms of being able to withstand armies. And so many people consider them impregnable, that these are fortresses that no man is able to conquer. Well, men may not be able to conquer, but who can do it? God can do it, right? He can lay these high places low. If He wants to, He can destroy that mountain and make it into a heap of rubble. And when God is Himself empowering an army of men, then they also can bring 
that city to the ground, which is what they find out. They find out and discover that their fortresses are not impregnable, but God is able to raise them to the ground. Whether He does that miraculously in a supernatural way by sending an earthquake, or whether He does that by raising up an army of men like the Assyrians, like the Babylonians later, to come and to lay siege to those cities and to completely wipe them off of the face of the earth. God is able to get the job done, and we cannot escape His wrath, right? His wrath, whenever it is coming upon a man. What is the only way of escape? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way that we can escape. We cannot be in this delusion that we can practice sin and yet be unscathed. Because in that there's a place that we can flee to and escape from the wrath of God. It's impossible to do so. So we must repent and have faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, The mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will be split, like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. The high places and the low places, all of them alike, right, will be affected by God. The mountains are going to melt under Him, and the valleys will be split. So whether you're on the mountain seeking to hide from God, the, the mountain's going to melt, or whether you're in the valley seeking to hide from God, the valley's going to split. Whether you are a man of high rank or whether you are a man of low rank, whether you are rich, whether you are poor, whether you are noble, whether you are common, it doesn't matter, right? God is going to bring His judgments on all of them, and all of them alike will be swept away in the flood of God's judgment, like wax before fire. Wax before fire. Which of those two is going to endure? Will the wax overcome the fire or will the fire melt the wax? The fire will always melt the wax, right? It will subdue. It will overcome the wax. And so it is when men face the judgment of God. God will be victorious. Man will be the one like wax that is consumed and burn up in the fire of God's fury and like water poured down a steep place. We almost experienced this tonight when we were trying to come to Bible study. Water was sweeping down a steep place. Well, imagine torrents of water coming down a steep place, descending upon a mountain and sweeping down into a valley. What can the people do to escape that? They cannot build barricades to stop that water, right? Water has a lot of power, a lot of force, and whatever is in its path, it sweeps away. It washes it away. And so is the judgment of God. When God's judgments come upon men, it is like water being poured from a steep place. It washes away whatever is in its path, whenever God's wrath is against a man. And this is what He will do to these people, to His own people, to the people of Israel, because of their sins. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 8 to 21 Isaiah 9, verse 8. The Lord sends a message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel, and all the peoples know it, that is, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore the Lord raises against them adversaries from resin, and spurs their enemies on, the Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west. And they devour Israel with gaping jaws, 
In spite of all of this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush in a single day. The head is the elder and honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. Therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does He have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all of this, His anger does not turn away, and His hand is still stretched out. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. By the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. They slice off what, they slice off what is on the right hand, but still are hungry. And they eat what is on the left hand, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. In spite of all of this... His anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. So there, the elder, the honorable man, the prophet, the widow, the orphan, the young men, God doesn't have pity on any of them. And why does not God not pity and spare any of them? Because every one of them is godless and an evildoer. That is the witness of God against them. Every mouth is speaking foolishness. Therefore, all of them are subject to the judgment of God. And when it comes, it will come upon them. And even though it come upon them, they will not repent of their sin. Verse 5, all of this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Jerusalem? Is it not Jerusalem. Here, the whole land is corrupted. Both kingdoms, both the northern and the southern kingdom are corrupted. But the source of these corruptions is Samaria in the north, and primarily Samaria, and then secondarily in the south, Jerusalem. These are the sources of their great corruption. The rebellion of Jacob is Samaria. The high place of Judah is Jerusalem. These are the sources from which the corruption is spilling out into the whole land, defiling it so that the judgment of God is coming upon the people, the kings, the princes, the priests, the prophets, the false prophets, that is the noblemen, those who are the leaders. They're the ones leading the people to commit these sins against God. They're the ones by their bad example and by their promotion of wickedness in the land, they're causing it to flourish and to grow and to increase so that their sin is rising higher and higher and higher and higher and it reaches up to heaven and then God brings His judgment upon them. Right? Isn't it a blessing on the land when its rulers, when its noblemen lead the people in justice and righteousness? When they promote those things that are good and wholesome Honesty, uh, you know, fairness, justice, righteousness. That's what we should be doing. And that's what we should be expecting from our leaders. But when the leaders of the land are themselves corrupted, when they're wicked, when they're promoting every kind of sin and vice imaginable, then what's going to be true of the people, right? As are their leaders, so will be their people. 
and it will spread out and it will consume everything. And this is the pattern that was happening here in Israel. The, the Samaria and Jerusalem, these influential cities that were setting the trajectory for the whole kingdom, from those cities was coming all of this sin, and then it was spreading like a plague, like a cancer throughout the rest of the land, so that God's judgments were coming upon them. 2 Kings chapter 16, and this is true in our own day as well. Right? Many times it is these cities, these cultural, so-called cultural centers, right? they're the ones that are uh, so, cor- so corrupt, and then they, they set the trends for all sorts of things, and then everyone wants to be like them because they think city people are very sophisticated. We don't think that, right? We know that there are a bunch of dopes up there. They don't even know how to do the most common things. But they, in their own mind, think they're very sophisticated and that we should all follow them and listen to them in everything that they do. But that is not the case. 2 Kings 16, verses 1 to 4. 2 Kings 16, verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of uh, Ramelah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and even made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then verse 10. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw the altar which was at Damascus. And King Ahaz said to Urijah the priest, uh, he sent to him the pattern of the altar and its model according to all of its workmanship. Urijah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Thus Urijah the priest made it before the coming of King Ahaz from Damascus. When the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar. Then the king approached the altar and went up to it, and burned his burnt offering and his meal offering, and poured out his drink offering, and sprinkled the blood of his peace offering on the altar. The bronze altar, which was before the Lord, he brought from the front of the house, from between his altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of his altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Urijah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar burned the morning burnt offering, and the evening meal offering, and the king's burnt offering, and his meal offering, with the burnt offering of all the peoples of the land, and the meal offering, and their drink offerings, and sprinkle on it the blood of the burnt offering, and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. So Urijah the priest did according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Right When Ahaz is doing these things, he's not just doing it as a private individual. He's doing it as the king, as the leader of the people. And he's doing it in the temple. So when the people come to the temple, where are they going to have to offer their sacrifices? On his corrupt altar. And many of them are going to do so happily. Right? They don't care. Right? They just want his favor. And whatever is in vogue in the day is what they're going to do. So here you see him doing this corrupted practice. And then that corrupted practice is going to spread. He's worshiping under every green tree. So the people are going to do that as well. And so it spreads throughout the people and it becomes so entrenched in their practice, these types of corruptions, that it comes to a point where there is no hope for them, right? Where God must bring his judgments upon them. And that's what he says in verse 6 and 7. For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard 
I will pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed and all of her earnings will be burned with fire and all of her images I will make desolate. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings and the earnings of a harlot, they will return. Here, what will God do to Samaria because of this great sin? Well, he's going to make it a heap of ruins in the open country. It's going to be a place where vineyards are planted. Instead of this great city, this grand city there in the northern kingdom, which was a very wealthy kingdom, right? They had great wealth in the northern kingdom of Israel, which emboldened them to commit their idolatry. Because they were so prosperous and they were worshiping these golden calves that Jeroboam had made, and they had such prosperity, they concluded that the blessing of God was upon them. And they built a fine city there, the city of Samaria. And yet God was going to reduce this great city to a heap of ruins in the open country. It would be a place that you would go and there would be no one inhabiting it. Instead, now it is a planting place for vineyards. They're going to plant stuff there and it's going to grow just like it would out in an open field or something that is uninhabited because this is what God will do to this city. Her stones will be thrown down into the valley and her foundations will be laid bare. The foundations upon which all of their grand buildings are built. These things are going to be exposed to the sight of men because the buildings will be reduced to rubble. God will completely destroy the city. And did God make good on His Word? He absolutely did. He absolutely made good on His Word because in 722 the Assyrians came and they completely destroyed Samaria and the northern kingdom, took them into captivity. And from that point forward, they were never a kingdom again. And to this day, the 10 tribes of the north are not a kingdom to this day. They were completely wiped away. And for what reason? Verse 7, her idols, all of her idols will be smashed and her earnings will be burned with fire. The chief sin of both Israel and Judah Though there are many sins, there are many, many, many sins that could be brought forward as a testimony against them. Yet the chief sin that God brings forward to show their corruption and to vindicate His own justice in bringing His judgment upon them. Right? No one can say that this isn't fair, that this isn't right what God is doing. No, they are worshiping idols. And that is their chief sin. It is idolatry. The violation of the first commandment of God. The reason it's the first commandment is because it is the chief commandment that we should worship the true God. And though that violation will lead to many other corruptions as well, many other violations of the first table of the law and certainly the second table of the law, because where people are committing idolatry, they're not loving their neighbor as themselves and doing their duty to their fellow man, right? They're committing all sorts of of sins against their fellow man, but chiefly it is our sin against God that rises and arouses His wrath and anger. And here they worshiped idols, mainly the idols of Jeroboam. Jeroboam made two golden calves and he promoted this false worship. He created his own false system of worship that spread throughout the northern kingdom and even came down to the south as well. And it was the stumbling block for the people of Israel, which is why in the north they never had one good king. All of the kings from Jeroboam to the last of them, 
Every one of them was wicked, was evil, and not one of them followed the Lord his God, but all of them were evil. So her idols are going to be smashed, and her earnings are going to be burned with fire. The northern kingdom was a very prosperous kingdom. They did have much wealth, but all of that wealth was going to be stripped away from them. It was going to be taken away and reduced to nothing, like the earnings of a harlot. The harlot, the reason people will say it is the oldest profession or one of the oldest professions is because it's a very lucrative profession. Even in our own day, there's much harlotry that's going on in America, and it is a way that women can get very rich. They can make great wealth by doing this. And this is what was true here in Israel. Though here, he's using harlotry as a metaphor to describe their spiritual condition. They were spiritual harlots, but just as they worshiped these idols, and just as they accredited these idols to their prosperity, in that way they were harlots in what they've done, so they will also be like a harlot in that many times harlots make a lot of money, but because they are of a lewd, um, they have no morality, Right, this profession is in, is in and of itself a very immoral profession. What happens to all their money? Well, it's easy come and it's easy go, right? They lose it all. It's all taken away from them in one way or another, and it does not lead to a long, prosperous, peaceful, quiet, godly life. How can it when the whole basis of what you're doing is immoral in this great evil and sin against God? And this is the same way with their idolatry. They are like a harlot. They have become very prosperous as a harlot. But just as the harlot loses all of her wages, so they're going to lose all theirs as well. It's going to be taken away from them, and it's going to be given to another person. 1 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings 12, 25 to 33, here is the account of Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern kingdom, and Jeroboam... Uh, created this false form of worship that became the stumbling block for the northern kingdom. And ultimately, it is Jeroboam's actions that lead to their demise so many years later, right? 1 Kings 12, 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there and went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeremiah instituted a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priest and the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar 
to burn incense. There, this thing became a sin. This sin was a pernicious sin, a common sin, a generational sin to the people of Israel that ultimately led to their ruin and their demise and the judgment that comes upon them when the Assyrians come and wipe them from the face of the earth. Verse 8, Because of this I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals in mourning like the ostrich. Here, though he is foretelling and speaking of their doom, their destruction, the judgments of God that are coming upon them, the prophet still has sympathy and compassion because these are his countrymen. right? He's not uh, giddy with delight. He's not giggling and laughing and taking joy and pleasure in announcing all of the judgments that are going to come upon his own people. But instead, he is sorrowful. He's mourning. He's lamenting. Right? He's going around barefoot and naked showing his dejection and how much of the sorrow and mourning he has because of what is going to come on his people. He's lamenting like a jackal. Right? The jackals who uh, yelp and scream and cry out uh, all throughout the night, this is what he's doing. Right? He's mourning like the ostrich, like these birds that howl and make all these noises. So the prophet is doing when he considers the demise and what is going to come upon his own people. And this is what we should be like as well. Even when we're announcing to people the judgments of God, right? we shouldn't take delight in their demise, in their destruction, in their ruin. But it should cause great sorrow and unceasing anguish in our hearts when we consider that our fellow man, and even some of our family and friends, are under the judgment and under the curse of God. Right? That's not something to laugh about. It's not something to rejoice in as if we get pleasure in knowing that people are going to go to hell, right? What kind of a person does that? Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Romans 9, verses 1 to 5. There the apostle says, I am telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Unceasing anguish in his heart. Great sorrow. He wishes he could be accursed for their sake. He is so sorrowful considering the hardness of the heart of his own people. And then Romans 10.1, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. His prayer for his own people is their salvation. And this would be similar to the prophet Micah. He is sorrowful, he is grieving, lamenting, wailing when he considers the doom and the destruction that is coming on his own people. Verse 9, For her wound is incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Her wound is incurable. That is her sin. Her sin is so great that God has determined that He's going to destroy the ten tribes, and God will not relent from that determination. There are some times when God comes through the prophet, and the judgment the prophet announces is conditional. It's conditioned upon the non-repentance of the people. But if the people repent, then God will relent from the disaster that He foretold 
A good example of this would be Jonah chapter 3 and 4. Jonah came and announced to the Assyrians that in 40 days uh, Nineveh would be overturned. And yet what did the people do? They repented of their sin. And when they repented, God relented of the disaster that he was going to bring upon Assyria because the prophecy was contingent, conditioned on their non-repentance. But when they repented, then God was merciful to them. But there are other times when the sin becomes so great that God determines to destroy the people and that He's going to bring judgment upon them. And this is the case of Israel during the time of Micah. The northern kingdom, their sin, their wound is incurable. There is no turning back. God has determined that He is going to destroy Israel regardless of what happens. And eventually that will happen to Judah as well. Even though Manasseh, who was a wicked king, even though he repents late in life, and even though Josiah was a righteous king, God had already determined that he was going to bring his judgment upon them in spite of the repentance of these men. Well, this is the way it is for Israel. And their sin is so great that it has even come to Judah to the gate of the people, even to Jerusalem. God's judgment, when it comes upon Israel, and when it comes upon Assyria, uh, on Samaria, God is going to do this through the Assyrians. But when the Assyrians come and take Samaria, then where are they going to go after that? Well, they're just going to keep coming right on down south, and they're going to come down to the gates of Jerusalem, and Judah is going to be affected. They also are going to be impacted with this judgment that God brings upon Israel and Samaria. That's why he says it's come to Judah, even to the gates of Jerusalem. Though Jerusalem did not suffer the same fate as Samaria in 722. They got theirs in 586, but in 722, Samaria was wiped off the face of the earth. Jerusalem was not wiped off. Though the Assyrians came, and though they had surrounded the city, what did God do? He was merciful to them, right? Because of Hezekiah and because of his prayers to God, God spared Jerusalem. However, they still suffered in that the Assyrians came and ravaged their land. They came and they surrounded their city. They went through sorrow and hardships, and they experienced some of the judgment of God, a taste of the judgment of God, though not to the extent of the northern kingdom, even there to Jerusalem. Then verse 10 and 11. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. At Beth lay Aphra, roll yourself in the dust. Go on your way, inhabitant of Shafir, in shameful nakedness. The inhabitant of Zanon does not escape. The lamentation of Beth Azil, he will take from you its support. Here he says, tell it not in Gath. Gath being one of the chief cities of the Philistines. And they were enemies of the people of Israel. And when your enemy finds out about your destruction, what does your enemy do? They rejoice in it. They rejoice in it. They mock you. They ridicule you. They do all those kinds of things, right? In a lesser extent, it's what happens today. If you've got uh, two teams playing each other and the one team beats the other, well, then what do the fans of the winning team do to the fans of the losing team? They mock them, they ridicule them, they berate them, right? And it makes the loss even more unbearable, right? Not only do you have to deal with the loss, but now you have to deal with the fact that these people are berating and mocking and ridiculing the team that I love. Well, here in an even greater way, when Israel is destroyed, their enemies 
these countries that surround, these nations that surround them, that they have had conflict with over the years, time and time and time again, they are going to rejoice, they're going to mock, they're going to ridicule and increase the sorrow of them when the judgment of God comes. And that's why he says, don't tell it in Gath. Don't let them know about it because if they know, then they're going to increase your sorrow because they're going to mock and ridicule you because of what God has done. But instead, roll yourself in the dust, in secret, in privacy, right? Roll yourself in the dust, weep and be sorrowful in all the things that you do. Go in shameful nakedness. This is what you will do because your support is taken away from you in verse 11. There is no escape. Whatever they are depending on, propping themselves up with, whatever hope they are taking from this world or from some deliverance or from some strength that they have that they think is going to preserve them, whatever it is, that support is going to be taken away. It will be cut out from under them and they're going to fall to the ground. They're going to come under this great judgment of God. Verse 12, For the inhabitant of Marath becomes weak waiting for good. Because calamity has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Here, these are cities, Marath, uh, Zanon, Beth Azel, Shafir. All of these are cities that are there in Israel and Judah. And who also are experiencing the judgments of God when the Assyrians will come down into Israel and then come down into the land of Judah. Because they're going to be ravaging all of these cities, all of the countryside, burning their houses, stealing their property, stealing their wives, their children, doing all these kinds of horrible things to them. Well, the inhabitants of this city, they become weak waiting for good. They keep holding on hope that everything's going to turn out all right in the end. It's all going to be okay. We hear about what's happening. We see that it's getting closer and closer. But before they come to our place, they're going to turn back. They're going to go back to Assyria. God's going to deliver us. There's going to be some miracle. Something's going to happen and we're going to be preserved and everything's going to be all right for us. And they wait for good, but what never comes? There's no good. There's no good. They, they are weak waiting for good. They think that God's favor is going to come in at the last minute and save them and deliver them, but they don't realize and understand who is the one sending the Assyrians? Who is the one behind it all? Who is the one that's bringing the calamity upon them? Right? They're not contending with men. They are contending with the Lord. And it is because of their sin, right? Because of their sin, which they will not repent of, but will continue and persist in their ways. Jeremiah chapter 8 Jeremiah 8, 14 and 15. Jeremiah 8, 14 says, Why are we sitting still? Assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities and let us perish there. Because the Lord our God has doomed us and has given us poisoned water to drink. For we have sinned against the Lord. We waited for peace but no good came for a time of healing, but behold, terror. Waiting for peace, but it never comes. Waiting for healing, but only terror. And why is this? Because we sinned against the Lord our God and He has come against us and no one can turn Him back and no one can thwart His will 
And when God determines to judge a people and to destroy a people, then there's nothing that they, there's no place of escape. So before that judgment comes, what should we do? Repent of our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way of escape. Verse 13. Harness the chariot to the team of horses, O inhabitant of Lachish. She was the beginning of sin to the daughters of Zion, because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. Here, Lachish is mentioned and is singled out, this being a city to the south of Jerusalem. And he's telling the people there that you better get your horses ready. You better harness them to a chariot and you better flee that city. Because God's judgment is going to come upon Lachish, even though they're in the southern kingdom. And we know that when the Assyrians came, what city did they besiege in the south? What city did they destroy in the south? It was from Lachish that he sent his messengers to Hezekiah in Jerusalem and told them that they better surrender because what city has ever escaped from the wrath of the Assyrians? So Lachish, though in the southern kingdom, would suffer greatly under the Assyrians, though it was a fortified city, but it was laid to siege by Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians. Second Chronicles 32 verse 9 2 Chronicles 32, 9. 32.9. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem while he was besieging Lachish with all his forces with him against Hezekiah, king of Judah, and against all Judah who were at Jerusalem, saying... So here, he's besieging Lachish because it was a uh, military strong post or, or a, a stronghold there, an outpost for the military, a fortified city. He's besieging it. And then after he finishes with it, his intention is to come to Jerusalem and then to deal with them. And then he sends these messengers ahead of him, announcing to Hezekiah and to the people of what is going to happen. Now, here... Lachish will suffer in a very great way. And why specifically is this city singled out? Well, he says that she was the beginning of sin to the daughter of, of Zion, because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. The city of Lachish was the first in the south to adopt this corrupt worship of Jeroboam. And it was from Lachish that that worship began to spread in the southern kingdom. That's what he says there. They were the ones, the beginning of sin. The beginning of sin for the south, the rebellious acts of Israel, the northern kingdom, were found in Lachish, and then from there, they became a corruption to the daughters of Zion. They were the ones who spread these things out. And this is often the way it works. There is a source, and then from that source is the spread of corruption. In terms of theological liberalism that has plagued the institutions and has plagued the churches in America for many, many years, the source of that was Germany. The German seminaries, the German colleges, were the ones who invented and were the ones that began to promote theological liberalism. And then it spread from those universities and colleges and have infected nearly every Christian institution in the world. From one source, it spreads like a plague, and then it corrupts and, le and leads to the destruction of many, many other things as well. And so it was here 
so it is in our own day as well. Then verse 14. Therefore you will give parting gifts on behalf of Morsheth Gath. The house of Akzib will become a deception to the kings of Israel. Here, they are going to put their hopes in men. They're going to give gifts to these other cities, to these Philistine cities, in hopes that they will come to their aid and that they will stand with them and they will help deliver them from the Assyrians. But these will be a deception to the kings of Israel because they're putting their hope in men, in horses, in chariots, in military strength, but they're not considering, because they're not listening to the prophet, that they're not contending with men. Who are they ultimately contending with? They're contending with the Lord. So they trust in lies and deceptions by hoping that these men, these alliances that they have formed, by giving money and gifts to these other nations to stand with them against the Assyrians, that this will somehow be a source of deliverance for them. But they're hoping in deceptions and lies because no matter who they hire, no matter who they bring to their aid, they're all going to get wiped out because God is the one who is fighting through the Assyrians against His own people. Then verse 15 and 16, Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Marashah. The glory of Israel will enter Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle, for they will go from you into exile. So he will bring, God will bring onto them the one who takes possession. He's going to bring on them this king, and he will take possession of them, and the glory of Israel will enter Adullam, likely meaning the caves of Adullam, where David hid. Here, the glory of Israel, the nobles of Israel, the kings of Israel will flee, and they will have to run and hide like common men in these types of places. And then he ends by telling them to make yourself bald and cut off your hair. This is what Job did. Whenever all the calamity came upon Job, he shaved his head as a sign of his mourning, of his sorrow, as a physical symbol of his afflicted state. And here he's telling them, you need to do the same. And the reason that you need to do so, the reason your affliction will be so great, is that your children, <clears throat> the children in whom you delight, they're going to be taken away from you, and they're going to be taken into exile. And could there be any calamity greater for a parent to experience than to have their little ones, to have their children whom they love, their young boys, their uh, teenage daughters, taken away from them into a foreign land where they're going to be exposed to every kind of suffering, to every kind of abuse imaginable, to never see your own children anymore because they're taken away into exile. And yet, what's going to happen to them? This very thing. And for what reason? All because of sin. It is their sin that has brought them to this place. And if we repeat and sin just like they did, what will happen to us? God will do the same thing to us. And so what must we learn from them? We must learn from their bad example. If we follow in their sin, then we will follow in their judgment. So we should reject their sin, turn away from their sin, repent of sin, put our hope in Christ, and seek to live a godly life, to do the will of God and those things that are pleasing to Him. Because 
God will bring the whole world under the judgment one day. And we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 20, verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11. says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which, was, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So all of these judgments, whether it be the worldwide flood that took place in Genesis 6-9, through or whether it be the specific judgments that God brings upon various nations, like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, or as we've read about what He will do to Samaria, what He will do to Israel, what He will do to Jerusalem and to Judah. Right? Whatever God is doing by way of judgment on the earth, all of these are pointing us to this great day of judgment that will come upon every man, whether small or great. And as dreadful as these judgments are, as dreadful as it would be to have your children ripped away from you and taken into exile, what is worse than that? Being thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. That is the judgment that we want to avoid at all costs. And there is only one way that we can avoid it, and that is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. To flee to this place of safety while it is the day of salvation. And so that is what we must do so that we do not come under the terrifying wrath of God.